Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Welcome into the One Up Podcast. It would have been U.S. Open Week at Wingfoot, but we know we now are going to get it in September. And the man, well, I thank Hale Irwin for taking the time to talk in detail about that magical week at Medina 30 years ago. And of course, we're looking forward to finally getting that U.S. Open at Wingfoot in the month of September. So for now, we say goodbye from the One Up Podcast. Thank you again to Hale Irwin, and thank you to all of you for listening. We'll talk to you soon on the One Up Podcast. Hale, let's start with the, the, the start before the 1990 U.S. Open, because you finished third, you tied for third at the Kemper Open. You actually had had some good results that year. Did you feel that you were not only, I hate the word trend, but did you feel like your game was in really good shape going to Medina? Uh, well, I did uh, a little bit, Gary. I, over the, uh, it's kind of a long story, I'll try to keep it short, but in 85, after I'd won the Memorial, I, I started my golf course design company, and I, I took what what efforts I was putting into playing, I slipped a little of that over into the design part, and, and while I was still hitting the good golf shots for nearly five years, I really had dismal results, and it was very frustrating, and here I was reaching the prime old age of 45 and maybe over the hill. And, you know, my gosh, what are you going to do? And so I sat down uh, right at this desk uh, in the winter of 89, just before 90 started. And I wrote down all the tournaments I had won and what I could remember. Thoughts, positive thoughts. And uh, what I couldn't remember, I set aside. And anyway, I, it got me thinking more like a player. So once the 90 season started, I kind of got some of those old thoughts and those old feelings and it, it didn't come overnight, obviously, but it, it was coming and I could feel it coming. So once we got to Medina, it was a matter of, Hey, I've, I've had some good finishes this year. Uh, I'm playing better. Um, I was invited by the USJ to play in that open. I was one of their picks. So I guess there was a little more focus and perhaps had I been in just automatically. I wanted to make sure that uh, I represented not only USJ, but myself appropriately. You know, Hale, you mentioned the invite, that the special exemption category, there were 19 players prior to, to 1990 that had received that. And the best finish was actually Ben Hogan in 1966. He finished tied for 12th. Can you explain, like, how did you find out about that? Because you won the Open in 79, you had the 10-year exemption, uh, so you, because of where you were with your game, uh, you, you were going to need that exemption to get in. How did they notify you? Well, I, I through uh, uh, the, the channels, if you wish, I had heard that something might be coming. Then the letter came officially inviting me to to play, and and I answered uh, uh, obviously a very enthusiastically uh, positive letter in response, and uh, that kind of puts the onus on that at least I think on that special exemption, because you, you are designated as uh, perhaps someone that is deserving. And I wanted to be sure that I was deserving of that by a, an appropriate showing. You know, when you played in the U S open at Bedina in 75, you played well, um, you, you finished tied for sixth. What if anything did you recall about that week that in any way might have emboldened you going into 90? I mean, it was 15 years removed, but what, what did you recall about 75? Well, I, I do recall, Gary, that when I was, while I was playing being the defending champion, there's always a little bit more pressure on you. Maybe it's self-imposed pressure, but nevertheless, it's there. And I, I felt like um, I've played this course well before. Uh, excuse me, and this is 90 that I'd played in 75. I'd played it well, but what I remember is that the last hole was a little different finishing hole, but I had a, I think I might have birdied the last hole, but I can't recall exactly. But I remember thinking that 
hey, I'm in the clubhouse. I've got the lead. I'm the leader in the clubhouse in 1975. Being the leader in the clubhouse gives you that, that maybe that one bit of false confidence, but at least it's confidence of some kind that I played well here. I, I know that I could play this course well. And however short a period being leader in the clubhouse means, it does mean that you had a good finish. So during 90, that was one of those recollections that I had that, that I kind of think helped, really helped me. You know, what's interesting, having won the U.S. Open in 74, you played well again in 75. You also started a stretch at the Masters from 74 to 78, where you were right there year after year after year. Do you recall it all? Because now it's a big thing in the media that, that he's built to play well in majors. Did that, did that slogan or, or label exist in the 70s? Uh, I think that applied to Jack Nicklaus. <laughs> <laughs> I think sole proprietary ship on that one. Uh, I, I think I tried to learn from Jack, honestly. And, and I, my game wasn't like his. I, I knew it wasn't. But you can learn something from the great players, whether it be Arnie, whether it be Gary, whether it be Jack. Anybody, anybody that's come along the line. There's something to be learned by those people. It's not always the grip. It's not always the swing. It might be how their approach is. What do they think about? How do they go about playing the game? And, and that's what I tried to learn from those great players. And with, with Jack and, and Augusta, he was, he was Mr. Augusta. And I, I, I played a lot of practice around with Jack, and I just tried to see how he played. And, and I couldn't hit the shots he was hitting. Just by he had greater loft on his long irons, for instance. Um, I couldn't play some of those shots, but perhaps I could play to positions like he did. Maybe I could learn where to hit into the greens, where not to be aggressive, where to be aggressive. And those are the little things I think that you can pick up on. And that's how I think good players become great players. They do the little things just a little bit better. And was my game built for Augusta? Probably not. But I think my attitude was built for Augusta. But I just, my game didn't quite fit that golf course. And if I could have hit, let's say, on number one or number five or some of those holes where there's just a, a little bit of a crest out there, if I could have landed my ball in the air five yards farther, I would have gotten 10 or 20 yards more distance. But I kept hitting right into those little crests. So rather than having a, an eight iron into the green, I was hitting a five iron into the green. So that's a big difference when you play Augusta. So I think my iron game was suited to Augusta. It's just that it, I was suited too far back. Mm -hmm. I, I just didn't get the ball out there quite far enough to uh, really take advantage of that part of my game. You know, the, obviously Augusta National, because it's there every year, has a certain identity I thought the U.S. Open as a kid had a certain identity as well. A lot of it was, you know, guys wearing blue blazers and bucket hats and officials with those armbands on. And right. your first U.S. Open was 71 at Marion. You finished tied for 19th, played pretty well at Pebble, a pretty good week at, at Oakmont in 73. As you progressed through in your career, did you sense – that the U.S. Open was changing at all in terms of its identity from P.J. Boatwright and Joe Dye to Frank Hannigan to David Fay and on down the line. Did it did maintain an identity that you felt was pretty consistent? Well, I think the consistency was in that it was a, a very serious group of people that, that had the best interest of the game of golf. And, and I think those people, Joe Dye right on through Sandy Tatum and, and all those uh, gentlemen you just mentioned, they all were serious about what they were doing. That's not to say that they were serious people. They were fun-loving people. But during that period of time, which they were the stewards of the game uh, and part of the USJ with the RNA, they very much had the best interests of the game of golf uh, at, at heart. And therefore, the U.S. Open being our national championship really exemplified the seriousness of what's going on. So they set the course up very difficult it was supposed to test you and actually my first open was as an amateur in 1966 out olympic club and knock on wood i made the cut but i was the first out with a gentleman by the name of gene boric from the washington dc area and the usa was there to read us the riot act on slow play 
that we were going to be watched and we were the, the leaders. And, and I'll never forget that. And you talk about the seriousness and boy, we're, we're on you. They were, and I, it scared me to death. I never played around the golf so quickly in my life as I did that day, but that's what I remember. You, know, you mentioned yeah. the armbands and the bucket hats. Well, that's what I remember is that, boy, let's get this thing going because I don't want to upset these people. You know, the, the, the Sandy Tatum thing is interesting to me because when you won in 74, obviously the, the line that is in, attributed to him, uh, uh, and, and many people think that it, it was a reflex to what had happened with Miller in 73, shooting the 63. When you saw Wingfoot before the competition started, did it look, feel, and seem like it was even, it had, you know, fangs that were even sharper than, than previous U.S. Opens in your mind? I think that all of us that got there and saw that course on Monday or whenever your first <laughs> practice round became very quickly uh, educated on this was not going to be an easy golf course. However you want to think the reaction to, let's put it this way, Johnny Miller played a fantastic round of golf on Sunday. Perhaps somewhat aided, all of us were aided by a rain on Saturday night. The course was soft, and Johnny's iron game was superb. He could throw those balls in there and, and stop them and not worry. But we all had that opportunity. So Johnny played a, a magnificent round of golf. But I do think there was some knee-jerk reaction to that, that, it was a shocker to see low scores, particularly 63 in the last round in the U.S. Open, did not happen. Mm. And, and I think subliminally, yes, I do think that there was that reaction by the USGA. But secondly, I think that the identification, which Sandy said, was to identify the best players. And I, I do think that Wingfoot brought that out in a big way. Now, we've seen some impossible conditions before. Let's go to Shinnecock when the, the greens were so fast and so hard, whether it be when Goosen won or, or whenever it was. Mm -hmm. We've seen that. We've seen it in Marion, little golf course of Marion, great little classic golf course where they put some of those pins were diabolical. And so that tends to be the action or the reaction, if you wish, that the USGA takes. And I think that's why some of the professionals in our all-knowing stance that we have say, well, hey, we know better than they. Well, do we really? Because I think we cater to ourselves rather than the game. You know, before we get back to 90, uh, you know, in 74, you know, you're, you're playing with Tom Watson, who was the 54-hole leader, and, and you even said there's a, you know, there was some sound from 74. You said, you know, a one-shot lead in the U.S. Open with a round to go, you're virtually tied. I mean, it, it, you know, yeah, it's nice to have the lead. But nonetheless, you made a long putt late in the round, and you actually did a mini trot. You ran back toward the front of the green. So we saw the forerunner to what we were going to see, no pun intended, to 1990. Uh, do you remember that moment? And then the second thing is the, the young man who caddied for you, I don't know if he was the son of a member at Wingfoot. The kid looked like he was 12 years old. Um, he was 15. Saw, uh, he was 15. <laughs> okay. Um, do you remember running toward the front of the green when you made that long putt? It kind of got over that last little ridge and melted down into the hole. Oh yes, oh yes. Uh, I've I've watched that a couple of times, but I remember distinctly because it was uh, it was probably a putt of some 30, 35 feet. And, yeah. Um, and I, I took the lead with that putt, and, and I I remember it going in, and you know, video reminds me of the little trot. Um, uh, some, you know, in my world, I'm so slow. That looked like a sprint, but anyway, <laughs> some people call it a trot. <laughs> uh, I do remember that cause it gave me the lead. Yeah. And, and yes, what you say is right. Whether it's a one shot or 10 shot, you still have the lead and, and they have to come and catch me now. If I play my game and I do what I can do best, they have to come and catch me. At least that's what you're thinking now that's not an arrogant thought. It's just that you have to kind of pump yourself up in times like that, because wing foot was so difficult that you could lose a shot in, and just, uh, you could lose two shots, three shots in one hole. Birdies weren't easy to come by. We knew that bogeys were very easy to come by. So after that putt went in, I thought, okay, now if I can just make a whole lot of pars, I have a good chance. And I'm not going to win with a bunch of pars, but I'm going to have a very good chance. You know, it, it's interesting because now, Hale, 
Look, if, if you leave a, a golf tournament after 36 holes, 54 holes, you go back to your rental home, a hotel room, you can get on a computer and you can assess the entire field. You can look at everything. You can look at their stats, how well they're playing, how well they're driving the ball. When you used to leave golf tournaments at the end of the day and you were in contention, did you, did you make a mental note of who was around the lead? Did you take a hard copy with a piece of paper of the, of the scores? Because you couldn't, you couldn't access that information once you left the property. No, I never did that, Gary. Well, as you say, it wasn't available to start with. And would I have done it had I that available to me? No, because the only person out there that really affects my game is me. I, I'm not too worried. When I'm looking back in 74, uh, Arnie was near the lead. Yeah. Well, Arnold Palmer, my goodness. But in my mind, I'm thinking, well, Arnold's, I'm not saying he's over the hump. He's not, but I, I'm not. I'm not concerned about Arnold. I, Tom Watson, well, and, and obviously going to be a fantastic player. He's already a player, but he's going to be a great player. But is he now? Right. You know, so then I, I remember thinking, so what? I, there's nothing I can do about those people. I have to worry about me. And, and that's what I tried to focus on was not who the names were, who was close by, who was – that didn't matter. It mattered because Wingfoot, if you didn't have a singular – idea of how to play wink foot you know what you were going to do you were lost you were giving it up right now and that's what i tried to focus on just me getting it in the fairway getting on the green and trying to make a bunch of pars you know so we get to 90 again and you got off to a good start you were tied for eighth after the opening round there were three guys who were leading after the opening round scott simpson tim simpson and jeff sluman were the 18 hole leaders um as you assessed, do you remember what your overall feeling was after day one? Well, I think it was um, some relief because, again, after not having played very well for five years, and yet I'd had a couple of really good tournaments coming into it, I, I felt the momentum coming. Did I ever consider that this was going to be a win? Heavens no. I mean, that's real premature. But what I was very proud of the fact that I had gone out and I'd established myself as a bona fide leader uh, that the game was coming back and I, where I didn't think it was going to be um, necessarily a winning score. What I, what I shot that day, if I you shoot it every day, well, yes, but it, I felt very comfortable in, in my own skin, if you wish, that I had gone out and played quite well and, and represented myself well and done what I wanted to do. So after day two, you move up a little bit on the leaderboard. You're tied for fifth going into the weekend. Um, do you remember it all? And again, you said, all I can do is think about myself. Do, do, do you recall anything about looking at who happened to be in contention going into the weekend? No, no. Uh, the only only name I, I really like, well, let's put it this way. When players say they look at scoreboards or don't look at scoreboards, I look at it because I'm a golf aficionado. I I'm interested in who's, who's leading. So yeah. I go to Augusta or I go to the U S open. I go, I look at those boards. They're informational. Just from an entertainment perspective, I like to see who's doing what. Now, is it going to affect how I play? No, because that board doesn't reflect. Oh my gosh, this shot's a lot harder than I thought. I better concentrate on this shot rather than that board. So I try to spend more time just kind of casually looking at that. And then when I get closer to my ball or closer to my time to play, just forget that and focus on what I'm trying to do. Did um, did Saturday did Saturday frustrate you? Um, did you feel like like maybe at the end of the day? Um, and then four back is not in a U.S. Open with not a lot of experience at the top of the leaderboard in terms of winning. What was your assessment after Saturday? Well, I, I didn't play particularly well on Saturday. I I didn't shoot myself out of it by any means, but yeah, I was disappointed in the results, but again, going back to Thursday and Friday, the first two rounds I'd played very steadily. I'd played well. And in a U.S. Open, you're more than likely going to have an up or a down day or two. And I figured, okay, I really haven't had my up day. I, I played well the first couple of days, but I didn't have that 66 or that 65, you know, that low score. But I hadn't shot in 77 or 78 either. So 
I just felt like, okay, Saturday's gone. That's uh, I wash it away. Uh, yes, I'm about an hour back of the leaders. I'm four back, but it's okay. You know, you, you can't get down on yourself. And if you do, then you, you can write it off. Because as you say, there, there wasn't a lot of experience at the top. But then again, I don't care who's there. They're playing well. If they're leading, they're playing well. And four shots is a lot of strokes to make up on that many people. It's sometimes it's not how many strokes are you back. It's how many people do you have to pass. You could be one back. But if there are 10 people in front of you, if you have a 10, 10 shot, I mean, a 10 liter board, how do you pass 10 people? Mm. You got to go low. So my thought was, well, actually, Billy Ray came up to him. Billy Ray Brown, I think, was one of the co-leaders. Yes. And I'm going to the first tee, and Billy Ray's coming to the putting green. He, he asked me, um, what kind of advice can you give me? And I, I, I sort of said, well, Billy Ray, uh, you're playing well. You know, you just go and play your game. Uh, if you want to call it a secret, it's to not beat yourself. You, you play the shots that you're comfortable playing. Be aggressive when you feel like it, but just – don't play those dumb shots. You know, play the shots that you're comfortable playing. So I'm walking up to the tee, and I'm, I'm paired with Greg Norman. I know we're going to have a, a big Greg crowd. And so I just told myself, you know, that's pretty good advice. Why don't you try that thing, <laughs> saying that to myself? And and so off we go, and, and I'm kind of trying to keep that in mind. And, uh, you know, Greg birdies the 10th hole, and, and I'm thinking, you know, if he makes a couple more birdies, he's, he's got a chance. And he had a big following. And I said, okay, let's, let's forget about this. And I looked at the leaderboard on 11. And I'm one shot out of the top 15. Well, the top 15 gets you in the next year. So that was my goal. From yep. the 11th tee on, if I could play one under here in, more than likely I'll be in next year's tournament. Wow. And so well, then you, you just you didn't stop. Um, before I get to what you did on that inward nine, cause you shot 31, um, you had won a lot in your career and television was progressing in the sense that there was more of it. It's not obviously nearly as prolific as it is now in terms of the hours of coverage, but you would become accustomed to knowing there was going to be television. If you were amongst the leaders, you were going to play later in the day. So you'd had a lot of experience in that. How did you? Used to occupy your time before you would go to the golf course? Well, whether it be television or not, when you're playing late in the day, particularly at the Open Championship when it's in, in Britain, you know, you're teeing off at 3.30 in the afternoon. Yes. What do you do all day? Well, when you're teeing off at 1 or 1.30 or 2 o'clock, uh, it's hard because you're, you're naturally going to wake up. You're excited. you got the adrenaline rush. You're going to wake up early. If you're one of those rare individuals that can sleep late through it all, well, I'm not. Uh, what do you do? You have breakfast as late. Oh, my gosh, I had breakfast at 9 o'clock. Now what are you going to do for the next five hours? So do you, do you read a book? Do you, I think maybe you turn on the television, catch some early players that might be on television. Um, you, you find something to do. Do you go out to the course early and kind of walk around? Uh, you go hang around the locker room and listen to all the grumbling? Uh, well, my wife was with me, thank goodness, and my daughter. So I had somebody to kind of help me get through some of that that time. But again, it's from the leaders to where I teed off. There's about an hour difference. So let's say I teed off at one o'clock, and they teed off at two o'clock. So that hour of of play, let's say probably there's uh, in two sums, maybe fourteen, fifteen, sixteen guys in front of me, something like that. So my, my thinking was that if I have a good round, I can get into the top 10. You, I, I can keep myself going in, in this good direction. And uh, so after that 10th that hole, like I mentioned before, and I was out of the top 15, I had to do something pretty spectacular to kind of get back in it um, when we made the, the after the 10th hole. So you... you you mentioned looking up at the board and, and thinking about where, where Greg was in proximity to the lead and where, where, where you were in terms of possibly being exempt into 91 at Hazeltine uh, the following year. So you birdie 11 and you birdie 12. Did, your, did, you, did something flip then? Did you turn off, hey, 
cushion for the exemption to, okay, I have a different, I have a, a different approach now. Well, Gary, I've always, uh, I've always kind of used the analogy. If, if you ever, the old, the old carousels, they had the brass ring that you could lean out and try to grab the brass, brass ring. You can't even talk brass ring. Well, I thought if, if I can just keep reestablishing a goal, keep moving that ring a little farther out. So after a, two really good shots and a nice putt at 11, I said, okay, try for the top 10. So I birdied 12. I'm okay. You know, and I'm not trying, trying to be arrogant here. I'm just giving myself these goals that are they're hard to attain. They keep you working forward, keep that ring just out of reach, and you've got to make a special effort. And then I birdied 13. Oh, boy, that's getting interesting. Let's, let's keep this going. I birdied 14. So I've kind of gone from you know somewhere to nowhere. Now I'm one back with uh, four holes to play. And I thought, if I can make one more, uh, who knows what can happen? Because the lead at the time was, I believe it was eight under. And if, if I can get to eight under and post that, now there's an hour's worth of play behind me. And who's to say that someone can't do the same thing or, or better than that? Come in nine under, 10 under, 11, who knows? But at least that's when I, we go back to our early conversation of being the leader in the clubhouse in 75. Well, that's what I was thinking. I'm the leader in the clubhouse. What, what a little footnote that would be you know, t- uh, to be the leader in the clubhouse twice and not win. But, you know, that's why the, the putt at 18 from you know, 45 feet going in was so big because it, it achieved a number of goals, not only just the, the putt itself and the circumstances under which it came. But I had established a goal uh, and it kept moving forward. I kept moving the goalpost further away, but I kept having the right play. I kept running or I kept making almost a touchdown and then the goalpost would move again. But that's what kept me going was to keep playing aggressively. You can't sit back and expect this score to win. The 45 footer was it, was it five feet of break? How, how much break? Um, and, and did you get committed to the line pretty quickly? Well, I think anytime you're in that kind of a situation, you've done things pretty darn well. You, uh, first of all, you have to be reading the greens well that day. And I, I felt like I was reading the greens well. Now, from 45 feet, let's be honest, do you really have the line? Do you really have it? You, you, you think you might. Now, this putt probably broke some two to three feet uh, right to left. The, the critical part was it was a little bit of a slope just before the ball got to a little bit of a downhill slope. And I thought, okay, on top of this little, uh, it wasn't a knob, just this little shelf kind of thing, little swale before, I mean, but at the crest of this hill before it got down into the swale. If I can roll it over this spot, if I've looked at this thing correctly, and if I can roll it over this spot, then I might have a chance. So, you know, as I'm standing over that putt, obviously there's only two things in putting, distance and direction. You know, as simple as that. That's golf, distance and direction. (laughs) Boy, wouldn't it be that easy? But uh, I thought the, the one thing is solid contact. Let's have solid contact with the putt. So try to make the stroke nice and solid. Be somewhat aggressive. Don't be short. You can't afford to be short. Um, so I, I hit it. Everything went well. And it's tracking nicely. And it got to that, that little bit of a crest. And it went over that exact spot. Now, now is what I'm thinking, if I've read this correctly, because it's at the, the end where the, the break really comes into play. It's not well right. the putts has a lot of speed. But right at the end, and it went right over that spot. And I say this spot is sort of a, it was a little lighter spot in the green. Uh, not. It was a, just a little bit of a – it could have been an old ball mark. It could have been just a little bit of grass growing differently. But it went right over that. And that's when I got pretty excited thinking, if I've read this right, if I've read this last six to seven feet correctly, this is in. And, boy, it went right in the middle of the hole. And that uh, I guess the exuberation was, was so great because it was such a relief having fought for the last eight holes and playing them five under par. In the U.S. Open, I don't care where I finished. That was about as good as I could do. You know, it's it's look broadcasting a, a golf tournament is there's some complexities to it. It's a vast area. The reason I say that is that they got to that putt on ABC a little late, 
And and when they got there, it was Roger Twibel who actually uh, made the call. But I'm I'm thinking about the fact that God, I would have loved to have seen another angle of of an ISO of you and and your in the way that you were going to react throughout that 45 feet. And think about it, Hale, that the, the hundreds of camera phones. And I have my misgivings about smartphones, but at that moment, I would have loved to have seen all the people who were ringing that 18th green who were videotaping it. <laughs> to see all the different angles of that. We don't have it. There's a modesty to the number of, of angles we have. There's only a couple. So I, I, I give that preamble uh, for this reason. When you started to run and you were an athlete, you were a very good college football player, you started running and then you, and then you decided you were going to run toward the rope line. And then you, and that was fantastic. And then the, 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 the apex of it all was when you, when you blew the kisses. And to me, it was completely spontaneous. It just progressed. Is that pretty accurate? I think you're pretty right on, Gary. Uh, first of all, you don't expect to make a 45. <laughs> I don't care if it's in your Saturday match with your friends. You, and you make one, you're elated. Any putt that goes in from that distance, you're elated. But, and there are these circumstances, like I said earlier, when you get that that opportunity and that putt gets closer and closer from that distance and is for that important of a putt. Now let's, let's backtrack. I never, ever thought eight under would be the winning score outright, right. perhaps tie, but not outrights, but it didn't matter because I had set a goal for myself and I'd achieved that goal plus more. So I was very proud of that, but here's what happens when that putt went in. Yes. Was I excited? You bet. But the roar, from the, the people and, and kind of in that little enclosed area with all the trees, it just echoed through there. And it was very exciting, very adrenaline pumping situation. And when I saw the people out of the corner of my eye, that over there was to thank them for being there and being part of this and, and cheering for that. It was a thank you gesture. Uh, and then the blowing of the kisses was again, just is a spontaneous, emotional time to, you know, again, thank you from my heart. Thank you. Um, and that's a situation I, I love telling cause I'll never, ever forget it because it was so, uh, spontaneous. Uh, it was, it was unlike me. I see it. And I, I almost get embarrassed because <laughs> I, I really didn't do that kind of stuff, but that's how important that was. You know, so now you got a lot of time, but, but you know, whether it was good or bad, you tell me, you were either going to not win the golf tournament or you were going to play the next day. It was, it was pretty darn simple. Mm -hmm. So you could go up to the tower, which you did, and you were sitting there when, when Mike Donald played the last hole. Uh, what do you remember about that time? Because you're sitting there with uh, – Dave Marr was my all-time favorite analyst. I, I, he was the sweetest guy. I never met him in my life. Um, and, of course, Jim McKay's a legend. What was that experience like when, you, when you're sitting up there and you're watching this? Well, it, it's kind of surreal because uh, certainly you have an interest in what's going on. But again, like I said, I never thought it would win outright. So knowing that meant that the worst case scenario is I was going to have a top five finish and I was going to play the next year. I'd, I'd met, my, met my goal. Secondly, you're looking at these other players and I can't control them. I've become a spectator now. Uh, you're watching Billy Ray and Mike and uh, Nick Faldo. Yep. Those are the three guys kind of coming down the stretch. And I'm not pulling against them. I, I'm, I'm watching how they're playing. I, I'm, I've kind of neutral as far as all this goes. Uh, I've, I've won two U.S. Opens. I know how hard these guys are trying. I know their hearts are in it. So am I going to take away from their enjoyment by I, – I, Pulling against them, never. That's not the, that's not the way we are. Um, the competitor in me says, I want to play tomorrow, but that's not the way you have to think about it because you can disappoint yourself in that, that sense. Uh, but it was interesting to watch what was happening. There was some, some pressure, and, and that's why having the lead and posting that was so important. Now, Nick was certainly one of our better players then. Billy Ray back-to-back -back masters. He had just yeah. won the masters in April. Yeah. So, you know, of, of the three of those, you guys say Nick is the favorite coming down the stretch just yeah. from experience alone.
but they're obviously all playing well. So it, it doesn't matter. They're all playing well. And it wasn't until the last hole when Billy Ray and Nick both missed putts that could have put them in that playoff. And, and Mike had a chance to win outright and, and didn't make it. So, you know, I dodged several bullets as far as, as that goes, but uh, it was, I think from a television perspective, it was, had to have been very interesting from where I'm sitting. It was kind of surreal. It's I'm kind of like, I feel like I'm floating in this cloud. I'm not real sure where I've been. I'm not sure, real sure where I'm going other than hopefully tomorrow. And that's about the way it was. You know, Hale, the, the evolution of, of the playoff system in major championship golf is fascinating to me. It went from just, a, I mean, a slog where you would have 36-hole playoffs. And if it wasn't resolved, you'd have another 36-hole playoff. There would actually been a 72-hole playoff in a U.S. Open. So you're, you're still in a position, and by the way, that we don't have any of them anymore. I think when those days existed, I can't imagine a harder day. A U.S. Open playoff, you are gassed. You're probably physically and, and mentally exhausted. And oh, by the way, the golf course might be half dead by the, come, by the time you come back out on Monday. Right. And Monday, wind blowing 25 miles an hour, golf course had dried out even more. That had to be by far the hardest day of conditions that you'd faced all week, was it not? It was. Uh, you mentioned the wind, Gary, and, and I think that's something when you're playing a course like Medina or uh, this year, if they, if they go to Wingfoot, you know, these older courses that have the big trees, the wind, it's not like in the British Open where the wind blows 20, it's a constant wind across the golf course. When you have these big trees and the, these swirling winds, it really makes it difficult for uh, club selection. And the way that wind was blowing and swirling, I thought it, it played very difficult. Uh, Mike played great. You know, Mike, he, he just played his steadily, put it in the fairway on the green. I was the one making mistakes. Mike played, I, I thought, a, a beautiful round that day. Um, it, it just, I think the having played so well the day before, then coupled with the difficult conditions on Monday, and a little bit on the downside of that adrenaline surge, it was a it was a tough day for me, and I really didn't get anything going till the last last few holes. Uh, but it, it was, uh, needless to say, probably one of the the hardest day of the of the week, certainly, but probably one of the harder golf courses, uh, uh, not not set up, but just to play under those conditions because I'm trying to muster up the adrenaline I'm trying to muster up something and Mike's probably trying to keep himself in the game from getting too far away. So we're both kind of battling opposite directions, but I think, uh, after probably five or six holes, I, I felt like I was settling in, but I wasn't settling in in the right way. I was making too many mistakes. I was hitting too many, uh, shots from the rough towards the greens. I, I was just making too many mistakes. Well, Hale, your, your reputation, of being one of the great iron players, long iron players in particular. Uh, I think the two iron you hit on 16 and again, television had made a lot of advancements. It's not what it is today. You don't have the great ISOs necessarily from crane cameras, but ABC did a brilliant job. And the two iron you hit on 16, you know, Gary Woodland hit a shot last year at the U S open at Pebble on the 14th hole that I thought was one of the great grown up shots I'd ever seen. Well, your two iron on 16 was right there with one of the great grown-up shots of all time. The balls, technology, ping was around. There was game improvement, but not in your bag. Um, what do you remember about, I think it was 207, uphill, uh, under those circumstances, two down with three to go, that shot? Well, the funny thing is, uh, Medina had concrete blocks in the middle of the fairway here's 200 yards i was one step off of that that concrete block and so that shows you how close to the middle of the fairway i was now from where my ball was to where the flag was there was i was tangential to a tree there's tree branches were right on the the line of if i hit the ball left at all it's going to hit the tree it's so i have to i have to hit a draw I have to play the odds. That means hit to the middle of the green and try and draw it in. Well, 
when you're that far away and you have a two under your hands and you're, you're two down, what do you do? You, you, you punt or you, you try to hit the shot. Maybe it's one of the harder shots, at least in my bag was to hit was that drawing two. I hit it perfectly. And, uh, we, we had the wind. And so, uh, the wind is pretty much into our face, but when you hit a draw, it can kind of bore into the wind. But anyway, I, I hit the shot just perfectly in there, perhaps six or seven feet from the hole. But it's one of those putts that probably breaks, you know, eight inches. It breaks a couple of, and you think, how in the world can this putt break this much? It's only six <laughs> feet from the hole. <laughs> but, you know, this, the side of the hole is the center of the hole. If you, if you get my drift, it has to kind of come in from that way. Well, fortunately, I made it. Uh, so now I'm now I'm back in the game with one down and, and two to play. But that shot, that two iron, uh, probably ranks in there right with the two iron I hit at the last hole at Wingfoot in '74, as far as importance. And uh, but maybe this one in '90 could have been even more important. I, I you know, a, a lot of people naturally because of the images, you know, of Sergio doing the scissor kick in '99. Uh, he didn't win that PGA, but that I, I think of the two iron uh, in 90 as the greatest shot uh, in the history of, of that hole. The putt that Mike Donald had on 18, I'm, I, you were on the back of the green. Were you down the line from his putt to see his putt from down the line on 18? No, no, I, I, I don't try to stand, you know, in the line at all. And, uh, I was sort of off to the side a bit, but you know, I think Mike thought he hit a good putt. You know, he, he, well, he did hit a good putt. He just overread it just a bit. Uh, but, you know, unfortunately for him, he had, he hit one of the, the few roughs he hit all day. He hit at 18 and, and knocked it out of the trees into the bunker and hit the bunker shot out. And he had, what was it? Maybe a 12 or 15 foot putt to win. Uh, but he hit a good putt and, and he did miss it. So, you know, the gods weren't smiling on Mike, but th they were on me. Uh, I had virtually uh, the same shot. I had a five iron into the green, just like I did the day before. I hit it in the same general vicinity as I did the day before. It was a little closer this time, so I didn't have a 45-foot putt, but I got it up there close enough where I could get my four, and now it was up to Mike uh, to make that putt or not. And uh, unfortunately for him, he, he missed it. And uh, off we go. Now here we're we're on to our first real playoff hole. Right, and and so you go right over to one, and you hit a you just hit a BB right down the center of the fairway. I think you had one hundred and three, and you didn't mess around. You didn't try to hit some little you know low one and two hop and stop. I, you took it. You had a full sand wedge to about eight feet left of the hole. Um, you know. When you hit that shot, because Mike played his shot, you would outdriven him. Uh, his ball backed up. He had probably 30, 35 feet. Just a thought about that second shot on the first hole, which was your 91st of the championship. Well, as I said, I, I got the birdie at 16, which really kind of picks up the spirits. We both part 17, and, and, and then I have this reprieve at 18 with Mike making, unfortunately, him making a bogey for himself. Uh, and we both hit the fairway. It was a, I don't say a layup, but I, I hit a forward, I think, off the tee. Mike might have hit the same thing. But it was a, kind of a layup into the fairway because you didn't. it wasn't a long hole, but you just had to hit the fairway. Uh, and as you say, he hit first and didn't hit it particularly good. It was probably one of the poor iron shots he hit that day. But I, I remember standing over the thing, okay, if he's going to be, you know, 30 feet, now is the time to stick it. You know, let let's – the odds of him making are, what, at best, you're going to make that putt two or three times out of 10 or 12. So let's be aggressive with this shot. No conservatism here. And so I, I pulled out the, the sand wedge and flailed at it and tried to take it right at the hole and hit it just a little bit left, what you say, eight or 10 feet, whatever it was, but it was close enough. You know, after you win, look, it's a Monday afternoon, and you've got your wife, you've got your daughter there. There's the great images of, of you having your arms around both of them. It's so different in terms of not only time in your career, time in your life, from the emotions of 74 and winning your first U.S. Open to winning your last. I, I, you know, to say, well, they're all great. 
Of course they are. Is that one better for reasons that, that include the awareness of children that are of an age that have seen their dad do what he has to do, being on the road all the time uh, in a solitary pursuit? Is that the most satisfying moment of your career? Well, it's certainly one of them, Gary. And, and as you say, and, and let's go back to 74. Uh, my daughter was at the time two and a half years old. Uh, our son was going to be born some six weeks later. Um, so I was there by myself. Uh, my especially good friend, Dale Douglas, was there and his wife, Joyce. <clears throat> and then we go to 79. Well, I had my family there. Both kids were small, but I had my whole family there. So that, you know, a little different uh, situation, but it was wonderful. Nevertheless, we we had a great time together that week. Uh, and now we fast forward to 1990. My son's playing in a, a junior tournament down in Iowa somewhere that weekend. My wife and daughter driven up from St. Louis where we were living at the time. And they got to experience that. They got to see that. So, um Different times in your life uh, bring special moments. And yes, those U.S. Opens, they're special. They're all special. But from the, the family side, you, you bring up a great point is that you get to share in a different manner each one of those and with friends that perhaps you don't get to see all the time with Dale and Joyce in 74 and then my whole family in 79 and then with my nearly grown up daughter and son who's off now playing in his own golf tournament. Uh, so it, they were very special. Before I let you go, a couple other things. I want to ask you about Keeler 1930, because when, when major champions share thoughts and create content, it's fascinating to me. But, and I've talked to you about this before when, when you were kind enough to come on the podcast with Lanny. You know, the 70s, you were raised in the sense and, and emerged in the 70s. And I think it was the greatest decade. I, I, I do. Palmer still won. His last one was 73. He won six times early in the 70s. Jack had 38 wins in the decade. Trevino won 21 times. Miller won 18 times. Watson won 18 times. You win your two S Opens. You had double-digit wins. I go down. Lanny, Ray Floyd, uh, I mentioned Watson, Crenshaw, Player, Casper. I mean, this is this is when, I mean, th these are legendary figures. If you were not a tough hombre, could you have become a great player during that decade? That would have been a hard time to break in, I think. <laughs> <laughs> those players that you mentioned were all not only really uh, good players, but they were they were tough. I don't mean they were mean. They were just, they were competitively tough. Uh, you talk about Arnold. Was there anybody more dynamic than Arnold Palmer? Nicholas? Wow. Only the best ever played the game. Trevino with his background, he didn't give in to anyone. Uh, Watson with his tremendous talent emerging and going to dominate the scene. Johnny with his great talent. Uh, just go on. And Floyd, you know, the talk about a guy that was tough as nails. And uh, I, I loved having him as my Ryder Cup partner because he was a great, great team member. Those guys were singularly very tough. Collectively, we're a great group of guys. Now, you can go back and say, what about Hogan? What about Sneed? What about, well, I, I don't know. I've played quite a bit with Sam. I never played with Ben Hogan. Uh, was there a guy better than Byron Nelson in his day? Uh, was there anyone that, was there anyone better than those guys? Well, no, but I didn't play with them. But I don't know if there was as many guys that could dominate as there was in the 70s. Mm -hmm. uh, and you, you can say, well, what about today's game? Well, what about today's game? Uh, you had the Tiger Woods era, but it was kind of Tiger Woods. Uh, today, who is it? So I look at the 70s, just like you mentioned, Gary, as, wow, what a, what a period of time. And we had, as you mentioned earlier, the, the growth of the game through television how how things were growing, that technology was abound with new equipment. The ball was changing. The clubs were changing. The, the How the players played the game was changing. So it was a very, very dynamic period of time. 
By the way, let me just mention for everyone who thinks that the white belt was something that was born after <laughs> 2000. Hale Irwin wore a white belt to win the U.S. Open at Wingfoot on, on Sunday for crying oh, out loud. Yeah. Fashion plate, huh? <laughs> <laughs> uh, before I let you go, I want to ask you about Keeler 1930 because you can choose to do whatever you want to do. Um, wh why are you involved in this? Well, I think uh, they're two good friends, you know, Pete Kowalski and Shane O'Donoghue from Ireland, uh, yep. two very good friends, and, and they both are are taking on a project and they've asked me to be part of this program, which we will launch later this year and kind of a little tease. Now it's, as you say, Gary, it's, it's bringing some of the great players to the front and, and what, what they've contributed to the game, what the players of old contributed to the game and who was Keeler, you know, who, who was this guy? And uh, we'll just leave it at that and stay tuned. I uh, that's a, that's a great way to leave it. Uh, listen, it's always such a joy. And I will tell people, if they don't think this guy is competitive, I mentioned to you, and I know you remember this, I mentioned to you in Chicago on a shuttle bus going back to a hotel that I was going to try to run my first New York marathon. This was in the summer of 2014. And you got off the shuttle bus and you took off running. You said, I'll run you to the, I'll race you to the elevator. <laughs> you did win that race that night. We will race again, my friend. Well, uh, I, I see if I got the, the camera cut right here. <laughs> From here down, it's not looking very good right now. <laughs> I got to get in shape, Gary. When's your uh, next one, by the way? Pardon me? Run again? When are you going to run again? I, I, I've run three of them. I'm out. I'm out. I've, I've, I, three's enough for me. Like three U.S. Open, three New go. York marathons. I'm done. Perfect. Perfect. Well, good well listen, you. thank you as always. It's always a pleasure. All right, Gary. Thank you very much. Been, been great to be with you. Well, I thank Hale Irwin for taking the time to talk in detail about that magical week at Medina 30 years ago. And of course, we're looking forward to finally getting that U.S. Open at Wingfoot in the month of September. So for now, we say goodbye from the One Up Podcast. Thank you again to Hale Irwin. And thank you to all of you for listening. We'll talk to you soon on the One Up Podcast. <laughs>